We're going to look tonight at a psalm, Psalm 63, the psalm of David regarding a time when David was in the wilderness of Judah. For those of you who don't know, I'm not the pastor. I am the pastor's mother. <laughs> the pastor is on vacation as of noon today. So mom is pitching in, doing a pinch hit one. Um, and when Dan asked me to do this um, psalm, immediately I looked and I thought, oh, please don't let it be the Bathsheba one. And James got that. Sorry, James. But I, I kind of prayed against you there. But this, this psalm has gripped my heart in ways that really hardly, no, well, often they happen, but I've entitled it Satisfied in the Wilderness. Now, friends, it's really easy to be satisfied in the Caribbean. It's a little harder to be satisfied in the wilderness. And that's where we're going tonight. So have you ever really been lost? I'm talking lost, like tragically, awfully lost. I know I've had the experience of losing a child in the clothing racks, and you're panicking, and you're looking around for, oh my goodness, what has happened over here a second ago? For me, I don't get lost in wildernesses. I get lost in cities. I was raised in New York, and then I moved to Mexico City, one of the largest cities of the world. And for some reason, I have a gift of getting lost amongst millions of people. And I can't understand, like, the grid that's going on. And so you're walking uptown, you're walking downtown, you're on to the right of Broadway, you're to the left of Broadway. I just wander around, and I have enough pride not to use my GPS because I don't want to look like a tourist, I'm a native. But I didn't grow up in Manhattan, I grew up in Long Island. And so, you know, we have chickens out there. And so I just had this feeling, and once I was so incredibly, terribly lost, I felt, felt like I walked 13 blocks and ended up right in front of Macy's, which is where I started. And it's just this awful feeling. When you're really, really lost, I mean totally lost, you get disoriented. Which is like, you don't know, like, you can't tell you right from your left, you're up from your down. It's, it's, it's just hard to get perspective. Now, in this GPS age, we rarely get completely and totally lost. Because there's a little thing on your phone or your car that says, rerouting. I didn't ask to be rerouted. But when you're terribly and awfully lost, rerouting's a good thing. It's not like she's bossing you around. She's just trying to help you to get from point A to point B. So it's like, you do your thing, sister, and I'll do mine. I'll just wait for that wheel to stop. Now, that might not be the fastest way, but at least we're going to end up where we want to go. But GPS is not useful in a wilderness. Like, in a wilderness, there are no streets, no signs, no landmarks, no places of interest to get your bearings. I am old enough to remember totally dating myself, a triple-A triptych. Please raise your hand if you ever got, oh, thank God, I'm among friends. Well, we would go to Florida every year, and we used to live off Route 1. Basically, you go to Route 1, you make a left, and you go to Florida. Like, it's just south, people. It doesn't get much easier than that, but I would order a triptych. I wanted all the books of all the states that we were going to go through. I wanted the little perforated map that you kept turning like this. And I felt armed and ready to go when I had a trip tip. So you can imagine, I'm a little thrown by this GPS thing. But in a wilderness, the only thing that helps you get where you're going to go is a guide. It's someone who has been there before. They know where all the 
water is, they know when you go this way and that way, and I mean, you can't like take a ride of the tumbleweed, it just doesn't work, they move. So you need a guide. Now, there are other types of wilderness experiences that are not physical. They're spiritual, they're mental, and they're emotional. We find ourselves completely disoriented due to our circumstances, and we have trouble concentrating, finding clarity, finding focus. Now, David found himself during this context here, not only in a physical wilderness, he was running for his life, but a mental and spiritual one as well. You see, he knew he was going to be king, but he wasn't king yet. He knew God had chosen him, yet here he was, running for his life, running in a physical environment that required all of his energy and all of his skill just to keep himself and anybody with him simply alive. When you're running in a wilderness, you've got to work really hard just to stay alive. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes we find ourselves in a circumstance or a season of life that is completely bone dry. It's a lonely place, and sometimes that season is long and it's painful. I'm sure if I ask most of you, you can remember a season like that. Or you are in a season right now. I've heard it said that you're either in a storm, coming out of a storm, or heading into a storm. You pick. And since we don't get to be providential in our own lives, we never really know which one we're heading for, or, or we pretty much know if we're coming out of. But sometimes we're smack in the middle of. Now, no matter what part of the journey you're on right now, David does have some wisdom in this psalm that can help us get through any wilderness experience with a forward-looking vision for the future. And I'd like to read Psalm 63 with you now. Oh God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in your sanctuary and gazed upon your power and glory. Your unfailing love is better than life itself. How I praise you. I will praise you as long as I live, lifting up my hands to you in prayer. You satisfy me more than the richest feast. I will praise you with songs of joy. I lie awake thinking of you, meditating on you through the night. Because you are my helper, I sing for joy in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your strong right hand holds me securely. But those plotting to destroy me will come to ruin. They'll go down into the depths of the earth. They will die by the sword and become the food of jackals. But the king, he'll rejoice in God. All who swear to tell the truth will praise him, while liars will be silenced. Father, this is your word. You promise that it is alive, it is active, and it is sharper than any two-edged sword. We depend on it to do its work in us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So after reading this psalm, I thought, I know what we need. We need a survival guide for navigating the wilderness that we will inevitably go through in our lives. So let's look at eight tips from David on how to not only survive, but how to thrive in the wilderness. I don't know about you. I'm 
not a fan of like survivor shows. I want thriver shows. I, I don't want to just like scrape through by the skin of my teeth. I want to like do the thing. So here it goes. Number one, declare the truth to yourself. Verse one, David starts with a declamation. He says, oh God, you are my God. Right out of the chute. He's in the wilderness, he's not king, he's supposed to be king, and he starts off by saying, I know who I serve, you are God. Craig Rochelle has written this great book called Winning the War in Your Mind, and I have found that most of the battles we face are won and lost right here. Because if we can't curate and control our thoughts, everything else is going to be lost. And he says, when you hear a lie, you need to remove it, and replace it with truth. And obviously for us, that's a scriptural truth. So I can remember after, um, most, oh, your, your family here, that when, after David passed, my first reaction was like, oh my gosh, there's, I have no reason to go on living. And the truth of the matter is, I could say I am incredibly devastated. But what I couldn't say, so the rest of my life will be miserable. That's not truth. Truth is that Jesus said he's close to the brokenhearted and he'll never leave you or forsake you. So truth is what I stand on. My feelings are what speak to me. And I can acknowledge my feelings without making a statement that defies scripture. And that's how we control our minds. So declare, step number one, when you're in a wilderness situation, declare truth to yourself. Do not let a lie get in there. It will, it will upset you greatly. So decide who's in charge of your life, God or you. Granted, there is our part and there is God's part, but you have to decide right from this moment who, is, who gets to be God. Is it you or him? Step number two, search for what you need to sustain you. David writes, I earnestly search for you. He was active. He didn't lay around saying, God, I'm waiting for you. Just waiting, and you're not here, so I'll wait. No, he took an active role, and he said, I am going to earnestly search for you, and I won't give up until I find you. God will do his part, but we must do ours. We need to search. Now, God is not playing some celestial game of hide-and-seek. It's not like, you can't find me. That's not what he's doing, but it does take something. I mean, we're trying to find a, a, an, an all-powerful, omnipotent God. So it's going to take work, and that looks like reading your Bible. It looks like praying. It looks like going to branches. It looks like coming to church. It looks like all of those things. Why? Because we're on a hunt, and if we don't find him, we'll never get the peace that we desperately need. Number three. Allow God to be the one who sustains you and gives you life. Now, David's over the top with this. He's like, my soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. You have to excuse me. I'm a preschool teacher. If you don't move and make things, everybody goes away. They start rolling all over the floor. So I have to like really lead with emphasis. One of the hallmarks in the wilderness is that it's incredibly dry and extremely important for you to know where the water is. You can know every other landmark in that desert, but if you don't know where the water is, you're not gonna make it. 
Without water, we won't survive. And David's physical need was water. But he knew he needed God even more than he needed actual water. John 4.14 says, but those, this is Jesus speaking, those who drink the water I give will never, I mean sometimes, no, never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Now folks, I'm going to give you some homework because you've got to be active and you've got to be looking for evidence of God's provision and presence. This became really important to me after David passed in the fall. And I, a good friend of mine um, gave us a wonderful gift, me and my mom. She had a beautiful home in Manaloking, and she said, just go, get out of the house, just go. I had taken a leave of absence from work. And um, I'm a big collector, collector of beach glass. I love to see junk made beautiful. There's just something magical about it. So I was walking, I had also determined during this time that we were there at the house that I was gonna get up and see the sunrise and I was gonna stay awake until the sun set. I didn't care what time the sun rose, I was gonna be on that beach because I had to know that even though my world was upside down, my father's world was fine. And in those moments in watching the sunrise and the sunset, I knew that he who holds the world in his hand could capture mine. And so while I'm walking on the beach one morning, and I'd like to say I was holy. I was a hot mess. And I'm walking down the beach and I'm bad. You say, pray that God sends missionaries. Yeah, well, he was sending missionaries and then you took him and wasn't even sick and this is just not fair and I can't believe you. And another thing, you should really help me find beach glass right now. When I look down, I should see beach glass and it should be red because red is the heart's color. Fine, I don't even own a piece of red beach glass, but I was having a fit. And I'm walking along and I'm, I'm just demanding this of God that he show up and he show me exactly what he had so that I know he was alive and active in my life. And in my head, I heard him say, don't look for the beauty you demand. Look for the beauty that I decide to send. And I looked down and there was a shell, a beautiful little shell. I never found a piece of beach glass, but what I did find is that God doesn't show up. He is up. I need to open my eyes and see all the ways that he is up. We don't serve a God who decides to show up and not show up. He is permanently up. Are we seeing all the ways he is deciding to show us that he has everlasting love for us? And something changed in me that day because I decided my new prayer was now, Lord, show me today the beauty that you want me to see. And it's come from many of you, a meal, a text, a song, scripture verse, a hello, you want to go out for lunch? All of those things are God's beauty to me on the day that he sends them. And I would have missed them all if I had been looking beach glass. I don't determine how he blesses me. He gets to do that. I just have to open my eyes and see it. We will always, oh, sorry, wrong one. Number four, don't be satisfied until you've seen the God who sees you. David says, I have seen you in your sanctuary. I have gazed upon your power and your glory. 
You see, we not only have to look for God in the evidence of his provision, but in the wilderness, in times of disappointment and uncertainty, we not only need to see him, we need to see him seeing us. That's crucial. I can see God in all his majesty and all his glory, but until I see the God of all majesty and glory looking at me, caring for me, it's not going to get me through the wilderness. In Genesis 16, 13, we have a story about a slave woman who was Sarah and Abraham's slave. And God had made a promise to Abraham and Sarah and said, you're going to have a son, but he was taking too long. So Abraham, Sarah actually came up with a plan and said, okay, you sleep with my maid and then I'll have a child through her. Because this is just, we're running out of time. As if God was on Sarah, you know, Sarah's timetable. So that happened, and then you can imagine the chaos that ensued. Nobody was happy about this situation. So at one point, Sarah said, this maid is making me crazy. She's taunting me. She got pregnant. I can't. Send her away. And so poor Abraham, stuck, just depends on God and says, okay, I guess we ought to do this. And so Hagar goes into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, she's sobbing and she's crying. And the Lord sees her. And she, the Lord met her there. And through that encounter, he showed himself to her in a way that when she said something, she said she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. And she said, you are the God who has seized me. And I have now seen the one who sees me. My challenge to you today is to ask God, to help you see yourself through his eyes. It's easy to see ourselves through others' eyes, through our own eyes. I think we just need a better view of ourselves through the lens of Jesus. How does he see you? That will help you in the wilderness. Number five, depend upon God's never-failing, overwhelming love. Now, Dan mentioned a few weeks ago that my favorite Hebrew word is hesed. And I have fallen in love with this one word, probably because I love words, and probably because it takes about 170 English words to define this one Hebrew word. It is that encompassing. Now, my favorite definition of all time after reading countless scholars was by a musical artist named Michael Card. He actually wrote a whole book on Hesed, and he said, here's my definition. The one who owes us nothing gives us everything. When the person from whom I have a right to expect nothing decides to give me everything, that's God's love for us. We deserve nothing. He doesn't owe me, but he decides to love me with this never-failing, overwhelming, overarching love that will never go away. You see, it's, it's his covenantal loyalty. It's his promise to us. He's fiercely loyal to this relationship, and he will not ever fail. We sing a song sometimes in church, and it says, even when I don't see it, he's working. Even when I can't feel it, he's working. He never stops working. Just because I don't feel it doesn't mean he's not doing it. Just because I don't see the evidence of it doesn't mean it's not happening. Eugene Peterson said something years and years ago, and he says, we are always walking in on something that is always going on, already going on. The risen Christ has gotten there ahead of us. We're simply coming into a place where he is already actively working. 
And I love that. Whenever I face a situation where I'm unsure and it just doesn't, it feels uncomfortable, I know Jesus has gotten there ahead of me. He already knows what's happening. We used to live in Mexico City. We were missionaries there. And there's this monstrosity of a volcano called Popocatepetl. It's a, it's a Mayan name, and you've got to kind of smash it all together. And for a little blonde girl to practice it, I'd say it like 8,000 times to try and figure it out so they wouldn't laugh at me. But I've got it, and that's really the way, it's, the way it sounds, Popocatepetl. And it's 70 miles southeast of Mexico City, I mean 70 kilometers. And in 10 years of living there, I saw it maybe six times. Why? Because it was always obscured by pollution, because Mexico City's built in a valley. They actually talked about bringing fans in to blow the pollution out so you could see once in a while. But um, it all just kind of hangs. You can imagine a city of 45 plus million people all driving around with buses and taxis. Like, there's just nowhere for the air to go. So it hangs in there. But just because I couldn't see it didn't mean it had disappeared. It was there. And on a clear day, you know, you'd be calling people, hey, Popo is available. Go look, go outside, you can see Popo. We just shortened it because it's too much of a mess to say the whole thing. God's love, his said, is more satisfying than even life itself. Even when we can't see him working on our behalf, he's promised in Romans 8.28 that he is working. We don't see it, but he is working. Friends, we'll always move forward when we take the time to look back and count all the ways God has worked on our behalf in the past. And that brings hope that God is going to act again. You don't depend on him to do the same thing that he always did all the time. But he does tell us to look back and use that as ammunition to know that he is totally not going to leave you in a lurch now. He is, you know what, he's not going to ruin his reputation on you. It's been thousands of years in the making. He's not going to say, nope, that one I'm leaving. I just feel like it today. He's never, ever going to do that. And we always move forward when we put into perspective God's great love for us in comparison to all the circumstances in our life. It gives us the courage to be faithful. Number six, we're almost there. We have eight. Determined to praise him in spite of the storm, in the midst of the storm. David says in verse 4, I will praise you as long as I live. Lifting up my hands to you in prayer, you satisfy me more than the richest feast. I will praise you with songs of joy. Now, we're, we're New Jerseyans. We like to eat. David liked to eat. And he said that God satisfies him more than even the richest feast. And what would he do with that? It's a response to his said. He was going to praise him. When we really grasp how deep and wide and high God's love is for us, we can't help but authentically praise him. It's not like I'm in church, i got to do the thing. We can't help it. And if you're not feeling it, maybe you've got to circle back and really think about how much he adores you. Number seven. Find your satisfaction in knowing that he's got you and he's got this, whatever your this is. Curate your thoughts carefully, especially in the night. David said this, I lie awake thinking of you, meditating on you through the night. Because you are my helper, I sing for joy. I love this. Where? In the shadow of 
your wings. Oh, friends, the shadow is still there. Nothing has disappeared. But we are sheltered by that shadow. And we can sing for joy, knowing that he's got this and he's got us. He has good plans for you, in spite of what your circumstances are screaming at you. I heard a saying years ago, you can't stop a bird from flying over your head, but you can stop it from making a nest in your hair. That's what you've got to do with your thoughts. These random crazy thoughts come flying over us and you either choose to capture it and stick it in there, or you say, birdie, keep on going, because I don't have time for that today. And you say, God, you are my God, and I am not going there because that is not truth. That's my feelings. I can't negate them. It's what I'm feeling, but that is not truth. Instead of entertaining thoughts that lead your heart away from trusting God, replace those, truth, those thoughts with truth from Scripture and compare your feelings with what's true. And eight, leave the results of injustice to the God of all justice and mercy. He knows what to do. David said, those plotting to destroy me will come to ruin. They'll go down to the depths of the earth. They'll die by the sword and become the food of jackals. Yeah. But the king will rejoice in God, and all who swear to tell the truth will praise him, and liars will be silenced. David was conjecturing, kind of figured that God would do all these things to those nasty people. At the end of the day, it wasn't his to choose. It was just, God's going to take care of them. I'm not going to waste my time and effort on that. I am simply just going to trust him and let him take care of all the injustice. I've got enough work to do with the first seven things to keep me busy. I don't know about you, but that's about all my little pea brain can handle. So let's go over these eight tips really, really quick. Declare the truth to yourself. God, you're my God. Actively search for what you need to sustain you. This is a partnership, God's part. In our part, we need to be active. He's not going to plunk it into our brain. Determine that God will be the source of life for you. We have choices, people. He doesn't have to be your source. But if you choose to follow him, if you choose to let him ordain the steps that you walk, then you must allow him to be God. It's not this half God, half man kind of a thing. How about if I do this part and you do this part? It's either yes or no. The question is very simple. Do I trust him? And I gotta tell you, there's only two answers. Yes or no. And if you land on yes, then we have work to do. See God in his majesty and look to see him seeing you. You are unique, you are valued, you are his masterpiece. He has something uniquely ordained for you. Depend on God's hesed, never failing, relentless love. Respond to this hesed with praise in spite of and in the midst of the wilderness. Sing in the shadow of his wings. He's got you and he's got this. And lastly, leave justice to him. He's got that too. Folks, we're going to move into a time of communion. Do you guys all have, has everyone been served, the bread and the cup? I want to do it a little bit differently today based on our, um, on this message that I feel the Lord put on my heart for you. In Matthew 26, verses 26 to 29, as they were eating, they were having
having dinner together. This was Jesus and his buddies. They were just hanging out. Jesus had just told Judas to go do what he had to do. So I'm sure his heart was rent, just thinking that this guy who we spent so much time with sold him out. And as they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and he blessed it, and then he broke it. And he broke it into pieces, and he gave the disciples each a piece, and he said, take this and eat it. This represents my body. We're going to hold the elements until we eat together. And then he took a cup of wine, and he gave thanks to God for it, and he gave that to them, and he said, each of you drink from it. This represents my blood, which confirms the covenant, that word again, that promise that I have with you, between you and me, that I will never leave you or forsake you. I will never turn my back on you. In fact, I'm going to die to ensure the fact that you and I have an eternal home together. This little cup, that represents what's going to happen here. And he says, mark my words. I won't drink this again until the day I drink it new in my Father's kingdom. Folks, there's coming a day where we're going to do that again with Jesus. He's been waiting a, a very, very, very long time to have this bread and this cup with us someday. But he did say, I want you to continue. I want you to continue doing this because every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing my death until I come again. Folks, in every wilderness experience, in every circumstance that rattles our soul and causes us to doubt that God even loves us, we have an opportunity. And the opportunity is this. Do I trust him or not? It's a simple question with only two answers. Yes, I do. No, I don't. And I don't know if everybody here has made the decision to say yes, but if you have not, I'm going to tell you that that is the simplest and best one-word answer you will ever give in your life. Jesus, I might not get everything. I might not understand everything that's going on. But I say yes to you. Here's a blank contract. I've signed the bottom. You get to fill it in. That's how I want to live the rest of my days. Before we eat and drink together, I'd like to take these seven steps and pray a prayer of commitment to the one who owes us nothing, yet chooses to give us everything. Will you bow your head with me? And if you feel comfortable, you can take the bread and the cup in your hand and just kind of hold it up as we read these commitment statements. Father, we declare that you are we choose to have no other. We commit ourselves to actively search for you until we have found you. We choose you to be the source of everything we need for life. We ask you to help us see you seeing us. Help us to see ourselves through the lens of your eye. Father, we depend on your unfailing love and choose to accept the pain as well as the blessings. We believe that you do have our best interests at heart. We respond to this overwhelming love commitment by committing ourselves to love and praise you with all of our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. Regardless of our circumstances, we will sing in the shadow of your wings. 
and we'll depend on your strong right hand to carry us. And Father, we will leave all justice in your hands, for you are the God of all mercy and grace. We commit ourselves anew to follow you and dedicate our lives to helping others do the same. We ask all these things and commit them to you in your good name. Amen. Please take the bread and open that up. Now, family, in order for bread to feed multitudes, it has to be broken. We saw that when Jesus said the 5,000. We think of that now. As we eat together, let's remember that as he was broken for us, he can use our brokenness to feed a lost world. Let's see. Now let's take the cup. You know, in order for juice to be extracted from the fruit, the fruit has to be crushed. Let's remember that he shed his blood to cover our sins, and he can use life's toughest moments that threaten to crush us, to strengthen us, so that we can be used to give hope to others. Let's drink together. Jesus said that as we participate in communion, we remember his death until he comes to take us home individually or collectively. Why would he want us to remember his death? Because his death brought life. His death and his resurrection changes everything. Life in the midst of a wilderness, a storm, or any circumstance we find ourselves in is doable because the God of all gods will never leave us or turn his back on us. As we leave this evening, Let's go rejoicing because the creator of the universe is committed to saving us and loving us all the way.